Well, we're in the book of Isaiah today, and if you would, open your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 59 with me today. Isaiah 59. And what I'd like to do as we start together today is um, kind of help us to draw some context from where we've come from so far, because uh, as Sam indicated last week, sometimes we can get very narrow in our focus, can't we? And uh, that narrowness kind of makes us forget the bigger context of what we're reading, why we're reading it, what Isaiah is saying. His so- Because if I were to write a letter to you and you focused for a week on, uh, you know, just a few lines of it, and you didn't come back to the other part, you know, for quite some time, you might forget the overall context, right? Uh, So it's helpful for us to kind of zoom out a little bit and remember our context for the things that we're reading. And and luckily, I think that we have kind of themes that we can follow of the text so far. So I've got a little bit of an outline here for you, just from about chapter 53, uh, moving through chapter uh, 59. If you can read it. I know the text is a little small. Some of you can read it. Okay, so um, here we have chapters 53, 54, 55, 56, and then 57 through 59 are kind of grouped together, and uh, you can kind of see those individually at the bottom. So in chapter 53 of Isaiah, here's what we saw, that there is a righteous servant coming. That's That's what we saw. If we could say that in a nutshell, right? There is a righteous one, a righteous servant coming. I'll pick one verse from chapter 53 to summarize that. Chapter 53, verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, that is the servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay? So that's the righteous one, and that's his work. That's someone who is coming. And we know that servant. We know that that servant is Jesus Christ. And we kind of went through that whole text and we spent lots of time identifying that, didn't we? So what was chapter 54 all about? Chapter 54 was about the promise of peace. The promise of peace for who? For the righteous ones. Oh, and that, that we kind of got into trouble with that because we found out really fast that we're not the righteous ones. So uh-oh, we don't get the peace of God. So something had to change in order for us to get a righteous standing before God and get the peace that he's offering. I picked one verse from chapter 54, hopefully summarize that. Chapter 54, verse 13, and it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So there is peace coming, but it's coming only for the righteous ones. And who did we indicate that that truly righteous one is? the servant that we just read about in chapter 53, who is? Jesus. So, in order to get the peace of God, what do you need? Righteousness. Do you have your own righteousness? No. So, in order to get the peace of God, you need righteousness. And in order to get righteousness, you need the work of the servant, who is Jesus. Okay? And then in chapter 55, what was that about? This was about the provisions of God for the righteous ones. So remember, remember that, uh, 55 verse 3, incline your ear to me, come here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant with my steadfast, sure love for David. This was an invitation for everyone to come and eat and drink of the provisions of God. Do you want to eat and be satisfied by God himself? God has that to offer you, to offer the soul that your soul might live and have true satisfaction. Do you know that that's available to you? Do you know that in this text, it was only available to those people who were righteous? And again, the unfortunate thing is what? We are not righteous. However, we have the work of the servant who was righteous on our behalf. So if you are found in Christ, in the servant, then you have all the benefits that came through this great righteous one. He got the peace of God. He got the blessings of God. And if you are in Christ, then you get all of that. That's good news right? Not as excited as I am about it. It's okay. (laughs) Chapter uh, 56, then, was a call to be righteous. 
chapter 56, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Keep justice, do righteousness, soon my salvation will come. And we had a problem with that too, didn't we? Just keep justice, just do righteousness, just be righteous already. And again, we can't. So this is hard, isn't it? But what do we have happening? I, th- I, th- I hope you see the theme. There's a call to righteousness, and then there's a reality that we're not righteous. But then there is this hope in the servant. He is righteous, though. See, you're not righteous, but he is. God has all this to offer you if you would just be righteous. And I'm not righteous, though, but you can be. In Christ and in Christ alone, you can find righteousness. You don't have any of your own. So then in chapters 57 through 59, the so-called righteous people of God are evaluated, right? So there's the call to be righteous, there's the provisions of the righteous, and all this that would come from God, and so now the people are evaluated. Say, God has peace to offer you, he has good things to offer you, if you would just be righteous. Now, let's see how righteous you are to see if you get any of God's blessings. And so the people are evaluated. And how did that go? It went not so good. The people were found to not be righteous at all. Uh, This is what Sam preached last week in chapter 57. Chapter 57, verse 12, listen to what it says. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds and they will not profit you. So all the righteousness they thought they had within themselves, God evaluated it and he said, good for nothing. It is good for nothing. It doesn't profit you anything. So kind of some bad news. But then in chapter 58, which we were not in last week, but we were in a few weeks ago, because it's all about fasting. Do you remember that? So we, we were in chapter 58 right before Easter when we all fasted together. And what was chapter 58 about in context? Well, the righteous people were evaluated in chapter 57, That is who they are kind of internally. And then their religious practices were evaluated in chapter 58. So the people were saying, well, I know we got problems, but look at how religious we are. Look at how much we fast, right? Look at all these great things we have to offer you, God. Look at how religious we are. And so how did that go for them? Did God value their religious practices? It says in chapter 58, verse 3, we have fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the days you fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. That's what God had to say about their religious practices. Again, evaluated and found to be not so good. So what's the picture here? We have an evaluation of the people. What we have in the text today in chapter 59 is a final verdict, right? kind of, we're thinking like a courtroom setting. Everyone's kind of presenting their case, and here's my case. Okay, there's all your testimony and all this kind of stuff, and and here's your side of things, and then now the judge says, I've listened to it all, and here's my verdict. Enter in chapter 59. That's where we are today, okay? Let's look just at the first couple of verses together. Chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay, so here we have first the verdict, and what can we say generally about that? That God was capable of saving them, right? His hand was not too short that it cannot save, but the issue was that their sins separated them from God. Do you see that? So everything is evaluated. The verdict is here. And God says, let me tell you how all this works. I'm the judge. We know that. Isn't Isaiah pretty clear that God is the judge? Yeah. Um, We sing about that today, actually. So God is the judge of all humanity and of all things. And a case is brought before him. And he says, now... I want you to consider me for a moment and my character, what I'm able to do. My hand is not so short that it cannot save. I told you about, remember this whole thing with the arm of God? I have short arms, didn't know it. I can't reach certain things. Shirts don't fit me right. I didn't know. I mean, I know now. 
God's arm is not short, right? He can reach into any circumstance and save, but there's a problem. What is the problem? Why can't God just deliver us already? Just deliver us, God, from, every, from everything. Do you know that that's what the idea of the Jewish word shalom means, peace. That is utter, complete deliverance from all things and a satisfied soul, perfection all around, completeness. Just give me that. That's deliverance. Isn't that what we want anyway? Isn't that what we all want? Just satisfaction. Let me rest. You know God offers that, right? That is peace. And who gets that peace? The righteous. And you are not righteous. But Jesus is righteous in your place. And if you would just believe in him, then you would be found to be righteous and to get the peace of God. It's very easy, isn't it? This is the essence of the gospel message. But back here, as it stands, and the people are evaluated, the verdict is, listen, I can save. That's not the issue. The issue is that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. Okay? So God can do the work of saving, but there's an issue. And what is the issue? Sin is the issue. That is, sin creates a separation between a righteous God and an unrighteous people. Isn't that how it works? Sin creates a separation. It's specifically what the text is telling us. There is a separation that exists between a holy, perfect God and a sinful people. I want you to think about a couple of things. God, in the book of Genesis, separated the darkness from the light. Do you remember that? Do you remember when he did that? Do you remember when God, in the book of Genesis, separated the waters from the waters? I know that's confusing, but do you remember when he did that? He made a separation between those things? Do you also remember that the Levites were separated from the rest of the people? Separated out. Do you remember when he did that? Do you remember when he separated the people of Israel from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you remember when he did that? Those words in those circumstances are all the same word used here for separate. Separated. As much as darkness is separated from light, so you and your sin are separated from your God. That's not good. If you want the blessing of God, the peace of God, the righteousness of God, you're not even near him. How can you have those things? We say, well, what's the problem? Well, it's not God. He can save. It's you. You're the problem because you have sin. And your sins, by nature, separate you from your God. And this is the condition that all people are born into in this world. A sinful condition. Separated from God. Just a couple of verses here. Proverbs 15, 29. Just listen to this. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to God. 1 Peter 3, 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So do you see this picture kind of emerging here from all these things? Is that God is near to the righteous, but far from the wicked. Who are you? I mean, you can think of it in today's terms. Who are you in today's terms? If you are not found in Jesus Christ, then you are the wicked, you are the unrighteous, and you find yourself far from God. But if you are in Christ and you have his righteousness, you find yourself right in the very presence of God. This is good. And you have that peace of God. So sin creates a division. But in Christ, that division is resolved. I want to just read, uh, th this is a good reference here. If you're taking notes, Write this reference down. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. 
It's a good reference, a good reference to go home and read the context of this, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. And then we're going to move on to the next part of the text. But before we do, just listen to this. I don't want to leave you in like this moment of despair, and I hope you're not there, because although we are not righteous in and of ourselves, we are able to obtain a righteous standing before our God so that we are near him, that he hears us. Now, the righteous, he, or the, the unrighteous, he does not hear them. His face is against them, right? You understand what it means when someone's face is against you. You see the look on their face, right? I'm, I'm coming after you, but it's not good, right? You don't want that. But if God's face is towards you for pleasure, you can tell that as well, can't you? And so God is for the righteous, but he is against the wicked. He hears the prayers of the righteous, but he does not hear the prayers of the wicked. So what does all this have to do with the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5, 18. This is all from God who through Christ, listen to what God did in Christ. He reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. And isn't that what we need? Isn't the righteousness of God what you need? You must have it. Without it, you are separated from him. As much as darkness is separated from light, so you are separated from your God without righteousness. And so how do you get righteousness? Through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteous one. Through Christ, he was reconciling the world to himself. And so Paul says, so I implore you, be reconciled to God. Why do I need to be reconciled to God? Because you are far from him. You know, reconciled means to bring together, right? So why do I need to be brought back together with God? Am I not with God? Does he not like my, re my religion that I practice? Does he not like my righteous deeds that I do? No, he doesn't. He doesn't like them. You have nothing to offer in the righteousness category. Nothing. But Christ has everything to offer. And he gives it to you freely by faith. Freely by faith. You can have the righteousness of God. This is great. So there is a verdict, and the verdict is the people bad, okay? If you missed all of that, at least get that. The verdict is people bad, God good. Next, verse 3. Back in Isaiah 59, if you're not with me there. Okay, we're going to go to Isaiah 59, verse 3. Then we're going to read through verse 8 together now. For, so this, this is, by the way, as we start to read it, you're, th this is, we're, we're kind of moving now, and this, so this is the evidence. It could, because they're going to say, okay, um, you're telling us that we're no good? Oh, oh, really? What evidence do you have? You know, so he says, okay, well, let me tell you all the evidence that I've accumulated during your evaluation phase. Here's the evidence of your sinfulness. And so that's what we have next in the text. Verse 3. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips speak lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, they give birth to iniquity. And here's some good imagery for you. They hatch adder's eggs, an adder, it, that's a, a viper. They weave spider's webs. He who eats their egg dies, and from the crushed one, a viper is hatched. Did you get what that was just? We'll come back to that. That's interesting. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, deeds of violence in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation, destruction are in their highways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no justice in their path. They have made their road crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Is that enough evidence 
to say that you're bad. This is God's evaluation of the people. This is how you've come out. You, you have evaluation. Everybody who's got a job, right? Or you, ever had, you ever had your evaluation day? How'd that go? Well, if you're a good employee, it went pretty well. If you're not so good, it went not so good, right? Now imagine you being evaluated before God based on your righteousness. How's that going to go for you? How did it go for the people? Not good. It's pretty bad. This imagery, a lot of it speaks for itself, doesn't it? So they attempted to be righteous, didn't they? We see that in the previous chapters. They attempted to be righteous, but all their works turn out to be nothing but sinfulness. Nothing but sin. Let's look at some of this imagery because I think, I think it's so good. So we get the idea that their hands are defiled with blood. Guilty, right? Their fingers work iniquity. Anything they do, anything you touch, it's just bad. I feel like that sometimes, right? Anything I touch just doesn't go right. But for them, anything they touch, no matter what it is, unrighteousness. No one enters suit justly. There is no justice. There is no honesty. We feel that, don't we? They hatch adder's eggs. What is that about? Uh, this is my favorite part right here, the whole, the whole thing we're looking at. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Okay, so if you could pick two things that you just say, that's gross. Let's just, for most of us, admit it's going to be snakes and spiders. Wouldn't you agree? I would just pick two things that you detest. Snakes and spiders. God knows what he's talking about. You know the things that you detest? Snakes and spiders? That's what you are to me. Whoa. Detestable. And you crush it. And what's born out of that? Another viper. Another snake. And then these spiders, they get together and they make webs. And they say, yes, the web, it's going to work for me. Because, you know, a web traps their food. It's their work, right? And they, they hope to get something, to produce something out of their work. And they do it and they make it. And guess what happens? All their work, it says, they weave these webs, but it won't cover them. It won't produce anything. None of this does you any good. You're nothing but snakes and spiders to me. Detestable, doing evil. So what we see here is that sin affects the whole person. Did you see that in this, by the way? God left nothing about the person untouched. It was their thoughts, their character, it was their hands, it was their feet, their eyes, their mouth. I mean, he talks about every part of the person. So who you are internally and what you do, bad. That's not good news. But unless we understand that, we can never fully understand that anything we produce, you realize is not producing any righteousness to, go to your account with God. If you understand who you are truly, then you understand that anything you do is not going to produce the righteousness that you need to stand before God in his presence. So if we can have a right view of self, it puts us in our place and it puts God in his place. That's what I meant earlier, right? Behold our God, and where is he? Seated on his throne. And where's the throne at? Above you or beneath you? It is above you. There he is on his throne. Where are you? Also on your throne? We're equal, God and me. He's on his throne. I'm on my throne. He's got his kingdom. I got my little kingdom. Wrong. You are the one laying bowed with your face before him. You are nothing before him. He is a holy God and you are a sinful people. That's the proper contrast. And we see it in this text here. So let's put God in his proper place. But what this is saying, and actually Paul quotes uh, verses 7 and 8 in the book of Romans. So look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Their feet run to evil, they're swift to shed innocent blood, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, the way of peace they do not know. You see that right there? Paul quotes that, a majority of it, not all of it, but he quotes it in, Isaiah, in Romans 3, 
And let me just read for you a little bit of his context because I'm telling you I'm interpreting this properly because this is how Paul also was interpreting what this text is saying. It's talking about the human condition here. Not just about these people historically, this is about the human condition generally. The big difference between those two things, right? Because this could be a description of those historical people at that time in Israel, Judah specifically, southern kingdom, in Jerusalem, at that time in history. Is that who it's referencing specifically, or is this about humanity generally? Paul thinks, and I think Paul is right, as I hope you do, that this is about the human condition generally. So what does he say, Romans 3, verse 9? What then? Are, any, are the Jews any better off? No, the Jews are not better off at all. For we've already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from several different places. One of the places he's about to quote from is Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. And he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And who did he just reference? All Jews and all Greeks. All people are included in that category right there. This is the, the human condition. All people. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And you might say, I understand. No one seeks for God. I do. I sought for God. Well, the scriptures say you didn't. The scriptures say you didn't know. The scriptures say you did not seek after God. The scriptures say you are not righteous. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. Not even one does righteous. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is the quotation. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. This is the human condition. Proven. The human condition. How is it? Not good. Unrighteous. So we can make an uh, analysis here that when any given person is then evaluated before the eyes of God, how does their evaluation turn out? They are found guilty. Who is found guilty? I just want to be clear. All people are guilty. But there's surely there's at least one righteous person, and the answer is no, not even one. This is the condition of humanity. Does God leave us in that condition? So I'd like to, again, before we continue on to the next passage, the next portion of Isaiah 59, let's just see how things are different in Christ. We saw it already in the first two verses, right, in the verdict, and God changes the verdict for us, right? Because no longer are we guilty. Now we are seen as righteous in Christ, right? The same thing is true here about our condition, our sinful condition before God. So sin affects the whole person that is internally, externally. That's true, isn't it? But in Christ, we are a new creation. A new creation. We are not what we were before. Things have changed. How do things change? Why do things change? Romans 6, verses 17 through 19. But thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin... See that past tense? Who's he writing to? All people of all time everywhere? No, he's writing to the church, believers in Rome. Thanks be to God that you, believers, who once were slaves of sin, and we just talked about that, but you now you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become now slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I, we talked about that not too long ago. I, I think that's funny that he said that. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now here's what you must do. Present your members, that is your body, parts, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So now in Christ, you once, who anything you touched, bad, all unrighteousness, your fingers work iniquity, right? 
But now in Christ, you are a new creation. You have been set free from sin. And now you can, for the first time ever, do righteousness. Now, the righteousness you do now as a new creation, does that earn you a better standing before God? No? So as a believer, we don't need to continue to earn God's favor. We don't need to do righteousness so that God would like us better, that we would have more blessings. So if we have faith in Christ and his righteousness is credited to our account, what of the righteousness we do then? Is that all for nothing? Why be obedient to God and do righteousness? Why? If you already have the full righteousness of God, if you've already been forgiven of all your sin, if you have heaven and all of its blessings, why work at this hard work and labor of being obedient to the gospel and doing righteousness? Why? Just think about it quietly to yourself for a second. Why? If you cannot answer this question, what is your life going to look like as a believer? Think about that. Your life is going to look like rebellion, isn't it? Because there is no purpose for you to do any amount of righteousness. And you may say, well, why not sin so that grace may abound? Because as much as I sin, God is just going to cover it with his grace. He's such a good God. Now, that is true. But if your heart's desire is only to do what you want to do, then that means you are not truly a slave, which the scriptures call us, of God. You just are living for yourself. Why do we do works of righteousness? Because we can do nothing but serve our God. You see, it's not a matter of how we must do. It is a matter of what we will do necessarily, right? Why does an apple tree make apples? Well, what else is it going to make? Right? Well, what else is a Christian going to do? Right? You're a new creation. You should be walking in obedience. Now, when you fail, however good your efforts are, when you fail... What happens then? When you are not perfect in your obedience, what happens then? We have forgiveness and we have the grace of God and we are called to confess that sin to our God and actually to one another as well. We are called to then seek out God in humility and honesty and confession of our sin and you will find forgiveness. Look at 1 John 1, 9. Okay? So, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, just one more passage here. From now on, therefore, regard, uh, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once were regarded, we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him le- uh, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. Does your life look like that? Does your life look drastically different than those who have not turned into a new creation? You get the distinction here? There are people walking around on this planet who are not a new creation. They are an old creation. They are in the flesh. They are unrighteous before God. They look a certain way. But then what about us who have become a new creation? Do we look different than the world? And not simply by mere comparison can we do this. We say, well, at least I'm better than them, right? That's not going to go so well for you. What you need to compare yourself with is the character of God. What you need to compare yourself is the word of God. How do you compare to God and his righteousness? When you evaluate yourself based on God, how do you look? And is it your goal to look as much like the Son, Jesus Christ, as you can? It is all of our goal to proceed down this road of maturity in Jesus Christ. And if you have no desire in you to pursue maturity in your faith, this is an indication for you. Could be, very possibly, this could be the indication that you do not even have the Spirit of God in you. Because if you have no desire to pursue righteousness, 
then that sounds to me like someone who is a slave to unrighteousness. Right? Now, before we leave this idea, I just want to give a word of caution and maybe further insight here that this battle does still remain within us. Do you know that? Just because you are a new creation doesn't mean, oh, I'm altogether brand new and I'm, I'm not that person I once was. No, that's kind of true, but guess what you have lingering around with you in your heart, in your mind, in what you do? Guess what's there? Yeah, you, your old self. And isn't that old self ugly? Wherever you go, guess what? There you are. And you have not yet arrived, have you, to full righteousness. So wherever you go, wherever your thoughts are, wherever your heart is, whatever you do, you must know and be aware, there I am right along with me through this whole journey. This is a process of becoming more like God. And by the way, just some insight right here. I think this is good. I would go into this more, but I'm just going to give the idea here that if sin separates us from God and God is not in the presence of sin, correct, and God comes to dwell in you, what must necessarily happen? That sin goes away. It's expelled because God is not going to stand in the presence of sin. So if the God lives in you, sin is being pushed out from you because God is in you and he is displacing the sin that's in you, right? Isn't that naturally how it should work? And that process of sin being pushed out of you and obedience overtaking you is called sanctification, right? So now the battle remains, and I just want to add a little bit of, of practical, specific practical um, uh, word here from James chapter 4. I'm just going to be here just for a second. I think it's important because it has to do with our corporate context, Okay? We are gathered corporately, aren't we? So we should be thinking, not only how does this affect me as an individual, but we should also be thinking, how does this affect me as an individual as part of a larger community of faith, the corporate body, as we gather? How should this be looking for the gathered people of God? That's a good question to ask. I think James answers that here, James 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Stop. Wouldn't you like to know? Are we a people who are prone to have quarrels and fights with one another? What do you think? Are you a person with a sinful background? Okay, that means you have a selfish background. And if we're selfish, what does this produce? Fights and quarrels. So he's... He's going to give us the answer, but it's really important that we know that we are prone, as a gathered collective body of people, we are prone to divide, to fight, and to bicker. But what God would have for his people is what? Unity and peace. That's right. Unity and peace. Should we pursue that? Yes. So what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's the problem. What passions? Well, godly passions, of course. That's the only passions I have. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's talking about sinful passions because they still remain, don't they? They're not totally gone. So we need to be on guard because the battle remains. It is here. It is present. It is among us. So we have to be aware of this, don't we? You desire and you can't have it, so you murder. You covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have, why? Because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So when we go to God and we ask for things, the things, even the things that you're asking for are selfish and sinful. So you're not getting it. And when you don't get it, you get mad. And you get mad because you're selfish and you think you deserve it. So you fight and you bicker and you complain with other people. Because you're already upset. When you're already upset, doesn't it make you more upset? Yeah? Kind of like a vicious cycle there. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, that is strife with God? You're, you're against him. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose for no purpose that it says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So what does that mean? That God's spirit is living in you, dwelling in you, but there is still sin there. And God is jealous over his people that there is still sin and he doesn't have them entirely. Do you want God to be jealous over you? So, okay, you got to think of it this way then. You are, you are uh, in, uh, married, okay? And you have a spouse and you are married to that spouse. And, and what you realize is that your spouse is yours, yeah, but also someone else's. Would you like, would it be right, would it be appropriate for, for the, the spouse to be then jealous in that situation? Because jealousy in its rightful place is out of love. And if you're telling me that all jealousy is sinful, then you're telling me that God is sinful because God is jealous over you. God is jealous over you. Why? Because of his great love for you. That's why. In its purest form, that jealousy is good. In its purest form. Most of the time, our jealousy is not that, right? It's a sinful jealousy. It's a selfish jealousy. But God is jealous over you because although you are his, you're cheating on him with sin. And so his spirit is yearning jealously over you because he wants all of you. You know God wants all of you? All your thoughts, all your behaviors, everything you do, he wants it all. So it says, but he gives more grace. That's our God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what God wants from his people, a humble, sin-confessing people who desire to do nothing but be obedient to him, the one that they love, right? Do you want to be obedient to your God? Do you want to let that past life of sin go? Do you want to give all of your heart and all of your affection to your God and your God alone? Then flee from sin. By the power of the Spirit, flee from sin. Okay, last section here in Isaiah 59. So here is then, we have the verdict given to the people, and it was not good. And then we have all the evidence for their sinfulness, and we talked about the sinful condition. We talked about how we're a new creation in Christ. All that's good news. And then this last section is going to be the corporate confession of the people because all the evidence was given and they thought, yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty bad. Okay, okay, we admit it. We're a sinful people. You got us, you know? I've been caught. I can't deny the evidence, you know? You got me on camera in a sense, right? How can I deny what you have just presented? You're right. And so here's that confession. Uh, 59 verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. Do you see how the pronoun has changed? And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon in the twilight among those full of vigor. We are like dead men. That's, that's what I almost titled the sermon today. We are like dead men. I decided not to. We all growl like bears, we moan, and, and we moan like doves. We moan like doves. Okay? After service, ask Lena to do her morning dove impression. Okay? It's, it's pretty good. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Do you hear this admission of guilt? Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing, denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, seeking oppression and revolt, <clears throat> conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public square. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. There's their confession. That's a good confession, isn't it? An admission of guilt for their sinful condition, and they're taking all the blame on themselves, at least from Isaiah's perspective, right? 
Isaiah is stepping in the place of the corporate body and saying, yes, Lord, all that you have said about us, true. We see it. Now, is this a good thing in your mind or a bad thing that the people acknowledge their sinful condition? When we read this, are we like, oh, that's, we don't like that. Or do we read this and we say, yes, that's, that is me. My sins testify before me. I know my iniquities. I, transgre- I deny the Lord. I turn back from following God. I speak oppression, revolt. I have lying words that come from my heart. Do you see yourself in these? Despite all their attempts, they were not able to do righteousness and follow after God. And they admitted it, didn't they? They confessed it before God. One thing I want you to see here, and we won't spend a whole lot of time on this, uh, but that the world, that is humanity, is actually not as sinful as it could be. Did you know that? Do you know that the sinfulness of sin and the sinfulness of the human condition is not actually as bad as it could be? It could be worse. How do we know that? Because of the fact that the people had no righteousness, and yet they are aware that there is no righteousness in them. That right there alone is an indication that there is some sense that they are wrong before God. And if that sense wasn't there, that would be utter or absolute depravity. Now, total depravity, as you may have heard that term, doesn't actually speak to depth. It speaks to span. That is, total meaning every faculty. Total meaning every part. Every part of us is broken, but it is not as broken as it could be. Because of the restraint of God on us. And this is what is known as the common grace of God for his creation. Because God sends the rain on who? The just and the unjust. The unjust, rain's a good thing, by the way. Rain's not a bad thing. You need rain for growth. So, rain comes to the unjust. Why? They don't deserve that. Right. And which one are you, by the way? Uh Uh-huh. I think we know. But that is the graciousness of our God. Um, There are a few indications toward this. You know this word for groping, groping around in the darkness? You know, Paul uses this word when he's addressing the men in the Areopagus in Athens. And he goes and he's proclaiming the gospel to them. And this is the whole situation of the unknown God. And he's, he's talking about how we might grope around in the darkness and somehow find God. You see, the condition of humans in sin is spiritual death. And yet, they are still living, walking around. Right? There is still something. We are alive and not dead. Do you know that the unrighteous... And you, by the way, before you came to Christ, were alive. That the grace of God was on you even then. That you were allowed to live in your unrighteous condition. Is that not the grace of God? We see it in many places. Okay? Um, Romans 1, for example, is where I was going to go and explain this a little bit more. I'm going to pass on that for right now. But just go back and read Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. And it's going to tell you that there is this sense in humanity, and you must know this, that there is something interwoven into the fabric of even fallen humanity, that there is a standard, and we have broken the standard of God. Is that the grace of God, or is that not the grace of God? If sinfulness was truly as bad as it could be, there would be no recognition at all, zero. But the truth is taken and suppressed in unrighteousness. You'll read all about that in Romans chapter 1. This last section here, and we'll finish. I want you to look at the last verse. Look at at, uh, verse 15 with me. It says, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Do you see that? (laughs) He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That is P-R-E-Y, if you're not looking at it. That is, you make yourself attractive to be devoured by the enemy. Okay? You make yourself prey 
Everyone wants to come and devour you. If you are the one who in the midst of an evil people pursue righteousness. That's not so good. But that is actually what Jesus told us was going to happen, isn't it? Isn't that how Jesus told us it was going to be in the world for those who pursue righteousness? John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you. Oh, that's good news. But it hates me. This is Jesus talking. Because I testify that its works are evil. John 15, this is, so this is later on, John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and you would bear fruit and that your fruit would abide and whatever you ask the Father in my name that he'll give it to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. That's the goal. And then, then it says in verse 18, remember what he said previously, the world cannot hate you but the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And then he says in chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Hates you. Why would the world hate us? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these they will, not do on, they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So there's the situation is that those who are followers of Christ, who are a new creation, who are actively living with the Spirit of God in them, pushing away sinfulness and being taken over by righteousness, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, and we're in that battle, locked in that battle together by the power of God, and thank, thank goodness that He's the one doing that, and we're not the ones actually doing that, but it's by His power and His strength and His might um, that He's doing that in us. But here's the situation, is that when you are called out of darkness into light, and the world now sees you, and you speak to the world, and you live in the world, the world is going to hate you. Why? Because by what you do, and by what you say, by who you are, you are telling the world, your works are evil. Because that is the message of the gospel, that without bad news, you have no good news. What is the bad news? Everybody's wicked. What is the good news? You can be made righteous, but it's not about anything you do. It's about everything that he did in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel in a nutshell. All right? Now, the one thing I want to say, keeping in, in light of how we might apply this in a corporate context, and we'll finish right here, is that because of this battle in us, there may be a temptation, just as James indicates, there may be a temptation to confuse things so that when sin is identified, we actually turn around and hate the one who identified sin. Because that's what the world does. That's what sinners do. When sin is identified and we say, that thing you just did, evil in God's sight. The world looks at that and says, I hate you because you said that. And then they may even do bad things to you, right? Now, when a believer goes to a believer and says, that thing you just did is sin. How should we respond? I hate you because you just told me that I sinned. And I'm going to fight and we're going to have all this big mess. And you don't tell me that I'm a sinner. I have the grace of God in my life. You're the sinner. Things get turned around and because there's the opposite reaction of what there should be. When sin is identified within the body of Christ... We should respond appropriately, thinking, I do not want sin in me, because if there is sin in me, this produces that, what we talked about, jealousy of God in a sense, right? You are identifying to me ways in which I am not being obedient to my Lord, my Master, my God. So I ought to receive that humbly as it assuming that this is correct, assuming that what is being told to you is correct by Scripture standards, not by yours. I don't like the way you talk to me. Well, I, 
if you can identify, you know, some kind of actual biblical sin here, then we'll talk about that. But it's not what we're talking about, right? I don't like the way you looked at me. Well, I, people say that to me all the time. I have like a mad face, you know? It's just my face. That's how my face looks. I'm not mad. It's just my face, right? People say, why, why are you looking at me like that? Why are you talking to me like that? Well, we need to be very careful that we're actually identifying biblical sin as sin and not just being upset with people. Being upset with people means that that selfishness is overriding us, overtaking us, and we just want to blame somebody else for the way that we're feeling internally. So we have to be very careful of that. But when sin is approached biblically in your life within the context of the church, how should you respond? With hate? Have you ever done that, by the way? Or at least let's just say with bitterness. Someone told you that what you did was not quite right. Hey, maybe let's think about this together. Here's some scripture about that. Or however it may be. And you did not respond the way that you should. I will admit that is true of me. Is it also true of you? That we are not quite behaving as we should as the body of Christ? This is a work that we must do knowing that this battle is raging within us, right? We are pushing away sin. We are being clothed in righteousness continually. All these wicked things that we used to do and the way we used to live because of our condition, you're a new creation. You need to be acting appropriately. But sometimes it's very hard. But what I would like for this church, and of course for all of Christ's church, but hey, here we are, right? is that we would be a people who are humble, approachable, transparent, honest, forgiving, loving, and unified. What must necessarily happen in that case is that sin is identified. Would you agree? Because if I let you alone in your sin, I am not actually loving you the way that I should. But the issue becomes, well, I've, I've told him about his sin before, and he, uh, that wasn't so good. I'd rather not, okay? I'm not a confrontational person. Some of you are confrontational. Yeah, you know, it doesn't bother you. But, you know, it depends on who you are and how you approach these things. But, you know, sometimes we get scared that if I identify sin in another person, I'm kind of scared how you're going to respond to me. I don't want that situation. But we should be a people who are approachable, and someone who can approach other people because that is the way to love Christ's church. If I let you go in your sin, this is not as the pastor, a pastor, an elder of the church. This is as a believer. This is as just someone as part of the body of Christ. So this is not just like, oh, but you're a special case, you know. It's like your job, you know, to care for people. Okay. But, you know, we all are supposed to care for each other. It's not, it's not my job. It is all of our job. That is what we must do as the body of Christ is care for each other. Now, if you leave it to one person, this is going to be a mess. But if we are all caring for one another, holding one another accountable for sin, confessing our sins to one another, holding one another up, pointing each other towards Scripture, being humble when we're approached about sin, this is the kind of body that we should be in Christ. Okay? And because of our condition that we know we are left without Christ, we need to know that that's what we once were and there is a tendency to fall back into that, but we just need to be very careful about it, right? All right, so this was a, a, a really good text. We only did, what, how many verses we do today? 15 verses. I will tell you next week, or should I tell you? I don't know. Next week, listen to this. We are gonna cover the second half of verse 15, all the way through the end of chapter 60. Yeah, that's going to happen. So, uh, and, you, and you're thinking, well, it's already like 1215, so how long is it? No, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It is, there is so much symbolism in, in these. Uh, I, I think that we can ap approach it uh, properly next week and still have an, you know, an appropriate amount of time. In it. But, but what I'm asking you to do, though, is read this because we're not going to be as detailed in word for word. Um, uh, so I want you to read that. Read, read from 15 all the way through chapter 60 because that's going to be our text for next week together. And I just want you to kind of be familiar with it as you come, okay? I hope that you have a storehouse full of practical application from today's message because that's the way I feel.
coming from it, okay? That's the way I feel coming from this text. There is so much for me uh, to think about and contemplate in my life and the way that I'm handling myself and the way I'm reacting and uh, the way my disposition before God and before his people, right? There's a lot here for us to consider. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pray together and then we're gonna sing one more song.